The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Let's start the week trending with Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star, and Brianna Parkins. And Brianna, you can kill six and a half thousand people in building stadiums. You can have LGBTQ plus um, laws that are discriminatory and uh, threat to the safety of people. But stop selling drink, and suddenly it's headline news. That's where we draw the line. Don't you dare take away our grog. Um, so, like, it's quite a massive U-turn because we're only two days out from from Sunday uh, to turn around and say actually we won't be serving booze at the stadium unless you're in the very posh section. If you're in like the twenty thousand uh, dollar box seats, then then you can get it. Then you can get a beer. But originally, ticket holders were guaranteed access to Budweiser, Bud Zero, and Coca-Cola products, and because they're sponsors of the tournament, to the tune of seventy-five million dollars. There's no word on how how the the organising body is going to square that with the sponsors. You can now I understand you can get booze in certain fan areas, but the stadium no go. And the argument, sorry, and it's about a mile away apparently, and then they would be ferried by bus, having had limited amounts at about fifteen dollars. Five hundred mil, yeah. And the sort of the argument is, well, the majority of people attending are from Southeast Asian communities or the Middle East who traditionally do not drink. Maybe they're more civilized than we are and don't need a pint to enjoy their match. And that's the argument from uh, organizers that actually the fans maybe don't want this. So it'll be really interesting. They to do see. know the Australians <laughs> and the English are going to this World Cup, don't but they? We don't know how many. That's the interesting thing. We'll see exactly how many fans will be travelling in a couple of days, um, and which ones are paid to be there. Now, there's a whole lot of things, Kieran Cunningham, to discuss out of this. But actually, just maybe let's take the drink element first. You know, maybe the fans will enjoy themselves without having to get pissed. I mean, we see, for example, the rows that have been going on about rugby fans at Lansdowne Road in and out all the way during the match, carrying pints, spilling them over other people. Can they not just actually have a few drinks before the game and after the game and not during the game? So, OK, this is a more extreme example, but do you have to have alcohol to enjoy yourself at a sporting event? Well, I don't think anyone's watched the England football team play sober since about 1935. And particularly with Gareth Southgate's England, I think you probably need 20-year-old scotch to get through it. Like, a couple of beers wouldn't do the job. But, uh, like, I've been to a couple of World Cups, and the last one I was at was 2006 in Germany. And Germany would have a big beer culture. And the, the fan parks worked really well. It's something that they've had at a lot of major tournaments. And the beer and the socialising thing, like you can only, you, know, you have to go back to European Championships in Poland and France and all those videos that went viral of Irish fans. Like, the whole... It is a beer festival as much as a football festival. There's no getting away from that. And, but it is problematic when it's in a culture like that. Like you even see when Liverpool have won trophies, how careful they were to get Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane away from the champagne. Because even to get a drop on them would be seen as, you know, as completely uh, beyond the Disrespectful yeah, to disrespectful to their, Yeah, so you have to respect that. But it comes back to the decision to give it Qatar. When those kind of strictures are in place and you have Budweiser as a major sponsor, there was always the chance it's going to be an issue. But what is problematic with this, Matt, is the the very late U-turn. And now people are concerned there could be U-turns and other things. Like they have uh, committed to, um, you know, the, the, the said LBGTQ plus fans that are in Qatar 
you know, they will have no issues. They will be treated as, as anybody else is treated. Really? Yeah, but that's what they've been promising up to now. But now when you've seen this kind of U-turn, like you can understand why gay fans will be a bit worried now. Like, could things suddenly flip? Like, or suddenly when this has landed on them and they see the reality of how alien a lot of what football culture is to their culture, will they react badly to it? And partners also heterosexual couples who aren't married travelling together mm. staying in hotel rooms together which is forbidden there's now this it's totally you know cast uh, doubt over will anyone be treated with the way that we think we're going to be treated with outside laws like we are going to a very conservative Muslim country it doesn't make sense that they would try and impose what's right by them alcohol is very haram like we should have seen this coming but again that late U-turn has thrown everything into question now So are they entitled to expect visitors to live to their own lifestyles? I think so, but I think the last minute change is the thing that's now got everyone worried, is how much power does FIFA have in the situation and will they be completely at the mercy of a government which runs very close to the religion? Kieran, I've been watching the Netflix documentary FIFA Uncovered for the last couple of nights and going back to the history of how the decision for this World Cup and for Russia was actually made. But what really strikes me as surprising is, is that when it was quite clear as long as seven years ago, that these decisions had been made corruptly, that FIFA didn't actually void the contract and bring the tournament somewhere else. Yeah, and I think that's, um, that's a very interesting part of this story. Like, why, why have FIFA been so keen to plough ahead, no matter what, with the Qatar decision? You know, why is Gianni Infantino going to live there a year out of the tournament, which is completely unprecedented? Like, why, why would you do something like that? Why are they so committed to this to this tournament above all others and this decision. And maybe uh, it will take a bit more digging for the, for to, to find that out. But Will he be hanging out with Daniel Kinahan there, do you think? Well, there, there's, uh, you know, we have a Mick O'Toole of, uh, of the star, you know, and he'd, be, he'd have been very much on top of the Kinahan story for years. But, you know, his information is that he's definitely uh, been in Qatar at some stage, but he's moving around that region by, uh, by land because he can't fly. Uh, and uh, whether he's in Qatar for the World Cup would be would be just incredible. It would sum up the you know the chaos of everything that's going to happen over the next few months. Like it is interesting. Like Tony O'Donnell in RT has said, that, you know, he, he was stopped filming, but uh, he thinks it was just uh, um, a miscommunication between the organisers and the security. But there was a Danish TV tr- crew a couple of uh, days ago that were stopped. And that was more confrontational, and they, te- you know, they threatened that there was a threat to destroy their equipment. And if the, you know, this is you're kind of seeing the issue with it's such. It's such. A, it's easy to forget because it's so wealthy. How small a country it is! You know, it's, it's only a, three million people. Yeah, and, and even physical size. Like it's it's like Wexford hosting the World Cup, and Wexford is more of a soccer culture, to be honest. So, so they're suddenly dealing with something they've never dealt with. They don't realize what a World Cup is. Like you see the fans' accommodation. It's so basic. Like it's it's effectively these kind of tented villages. See, it is interesting as well about the fans where they go because one of the beauty of World Cups and like. Went to a couple of World Cups. I was lucky enough to be in Italy in 1990, to be in the United States in 1994. And it isn't just the football. I mean, the football is the central reason for being there, and we remember what happened. But it is all about the fans mingling together. And even, it has to be said, in Russia in 2018, for the foreign fans, it was a great fan experience. This makes it even more bizarre that FIFA would have created this event for Qatar, where the fans, it seems, are not going to be accommodated. I mean, as someone who has absolutely zero interest in football or soccer, 
looking at the way FIFA has acted or any major football body has acted in the last 10 to 15 years, you know, these guys aren't always on the moral right side of the fans. Like, look at what's happened at higher levels. Like, it's just, it's not unsurprising for me. And then what about people acting on behalf of Qatar? David Beckham, for example. Tell us about the English comedian Joe Lysett and the challenge that he has posed to David Beckham. Uh, so is Joe Lysett, in his own words, as he emailed um, David Beckham's PR team. He's in a bit of a pickle. He's uh, having a busy week himself. He... Uh, made an internet uh, sort of YouTube video with a stack of uh, £10,000 and said that for every that was for every pound that we assume what we think um, Beckham is getting paid to, to work with the Qataris. And he said, look, David Beckham, you're a gay icon. You did interviews with gay magazines. You did photo shoots and you married a Spice Girl, which is, in Joe Lysett's words, is the gayest thing a human can do. Um, please don't let, go, let us down. If you don't take this deal, I will donate this £10,000 to football charities across the country. If you go ahead with it, I'm going to shred this £10,000. Um, and in, in that, doing that, your, your status as a gay icon will also be shredded. But it's a week out and it's getting very close to the date and Joe Lysett has not had a response. I think Beckham has taken way too much money, Kieran, for there to be likely to be any response. Uh, absolutely. Like the, the deal is reported £150 million over 10 years. And uh, but. It, but at the same time, he's worth the reported half a, half a billion. No, he didn't need to take the money. He's a very wealthy man anyway. And what, how, uh, you know, he has so many advisors around him that, that he thought this was a good decision. Like the Lysa thing actually annoys me a bit. It's a PR stunt by a comedian. And like he's got a lot of publicity out of himself. Do you not think he genuinely means it? He might genuinely mean it, but uh, yeah, yeah, fair. maybe. Maybe he does. Maybe I'm being too harsh, but... Uh, I do think there should there should have been more rigorous uh, coverage of Beckham's role in it, and uh, you know it was it was uh, just such a remarkable coincidence that he queued for thirteen hours to view yeah. the Queen a week after it was highlighted. Yeah, he's trying. He's working half that nighthood. That man is working. Uh, listener says, "I'm sure opinions would change had we qualified as the only people moaning and quibbling <laughs> are the countries that didn't qualify." That's not nah, true because the true Australian team, the Socceroos, are the I think the first and so far only team who have come out and and they made a video and said that they were very very concerned. They've been tracking the labour conditions in Qatar and also their horrific track record of, of gay rights and the abuse of, of minorities. So the Socceroos have come out and said that and they're playing in the World Cup. So I don't think that's necessarily yeah, true. It was interesting just because Ireland played Norway in a friendly last night, Matt, and Stephen Kenny was asked in the run-up, you know, because he's going out on a scouting mission and he effectively kicked a touch. He said, you know, I have to do this as part of my job for, you know, to scout our Euros opponents. There's no way around it. But the Norwegian manager was asked a similar question this week and he said, no, he won't be going to the World Cup. It's completely wrong. He doesn't agree with it, you know, which... I wonder if how are they going to fill the grounds? I wonder if people from countries like... I mean, there's word apparently the Welsh are travelling en masse to Tenerife Mm. that they're going to turn it into a mad, wild party for all the games. That's probably where all the trouble is going to be. I think I'd rather be in Tenerife with the Welsh fans. But um, they've been accused of, of, of fake supporters. There's been these videos of all these supporters, I mean, it was uh, very confusing just to have uh, a big group of English fans, but they are originally from India, chanting, it's coming home, waving lines, Yeah, and they, they managed to make the worst song of all time sound even worse. <laughs> like, they put an even worse tune to it, which is... Uh, but, it, then, but it actually reminds me in a way, Matt, sorry, Brian, yeah, but uh, I remember talking to Barry McGuigan. I, I did a feature a couple of years ago looking back at the Moscow Olympics because it was such, you know, that was the height of the Cold War. And, yeah. You know, there was all the boycotts, etc. But Barry was one of the boxers there 
there on the Ireland team. And Barry said it was really weird in, in uh, atmosphere and there was no children to be seen. And he thinks children were taken out of, the, out of Moscow because they wanted to clear up the public transport system. He said there were no dogs to be seen and he said hardly any birds. And this, this seemed to be some deliberate policy. I don't know, did they not want dog dirt on the streets or something just uh, for their image? But it, it was just such a, sur- a surreal atmosphere because things you take for granted like that were suddenly removed. And the kind of strangeness of that reminds me of the strangeness around Qatar now. So does anyone, and we are running out of time, but do we know what's going to happen to the Eight Stadium afterwards? Because if it's the size of Wexford and mm. they don't have professionals, what, what do they need Eight Stadiums for? Will they be demolished? Well, w- one thing I've learned from major events is the promises that are made about uh, venues that are built are never kept. Like people always say, oh, this, there's, a, there's a legacy, or these will be turned into apartments, or the Olympic village will be turned into apartments, whatever. And rarely does it happen. Like you see, there's actually great um, uh, photo collection of the Athens Olympics venues, and they're all, you know, I was at that Olympics, and they're, you know, it's so, it's so grim seeing them now. They're all overgrown with weeds. Yeah. They're just left to, to waste. The 1906 venue actually does kept as a beautiful museum. Okay, we're getting lots of comments in about that. And uh, where's your outrage about the Saudi Arabian Formula One at the weekend? Look forward to reply. Well, Kieran Culling, you and I have spoken about the malign influence of Saudi Arabia on sport and his program many times. We have. And uh, actually, one of the reasons... I think this could be an absolute chaos, this World Cup, in terms of organisation. And I kind of hope it does, is that it does become an omni-shambles, as Malcolm Tucker would put it. But Because that might well stop Saudi getting the World Cup. Because Saudi are going to bid for both the World Cup and the Olympics. And we, as you say, we, we've often talked about uh, Saudi's uh, grab across a range of sports. And I think uh, giving it to Saudi would be even worse than Qatar. So hopefully this might scupper the chances of the region getting it for a long, long time. Okay, David in Loud says, I've never understood drinking before or during any sporting event. I've sat at premiership matches with lads falling asleep beside me. There's no way you can fully concentrate or enjoy a game if too much alcohol is consumed. By all means, wait until after the game. Sir, I mentioned, Brianna, earlier this Netflix documentary on FIFA. And one of the things now that's really obvious when you look at the stuff, even going back only 10 years ago, there's not a woman in sight. Mm. It is just men making all of these decisions, power grabs, pocketing money all the rest of it sometimes there are some women who are there in support to the men who have the positions of power so what do you make of Mary Robinson saying at COP27 that if you had women at the top table it would help tackle the crisis in climate is the climate crisis global warming too important to be left to men so I kind of love Mary Robinson's new role which is just seems to be like a bit of a global shit stirrer at the moment and I love her for that. Like last year at COP... I can't imagine she thinks of herself in those terms. <laughs> but no, it's, fan- it's fantastic when you see former country leaders... Like official title. <laughs> like we see Julia Gillard from Australia, we see Kevin Rudd, our own Prime Minister, is doing it as well. They, they kind of give up and they, they, see, they seek beyond their own national statehood and they go, hang on, these are global problems that I want to give out about and they have the power to and great, good on them. Last year she gave out to the Australians. She targeted us for, for not doing enough um, for uh, climate change change really, really put us on blast. This year she was talking about the lack of leaders uh, that she saw and, and senior officials at COP27 and basically the need for would women care about climate change and climate science and and these kind of issues if they don't see a woman speaking on the issue or having any authority on the issue and I was kind of in two minds about this and this UCD professor, uh, Cara Ostenberg, 
Augustenberg. Sorry, Cara, if I've mangled your name. Sort of said the same thing that she saw cli- climate science as this gender neutral thing. What does it matter if it's if it's men or women? But she makes the case that the majority of decisions, consumer decisions, which is correct in the household, are made by women. So you know things like laundry detergent, can, big consumer things, where to holiday, how the kids get to school, transport choices, all that practical stuff that really feeds into to people's carbon footprints. And she does make the case of what's the point of of women paying attention if they don't have a seat at the table. But I'm very reluctant for a top-down approach. I, I see the same thing. I get invited to all these, all these breakfasts saying we need to get more women in, in CEOs. I don't really care about women as CEOs. I care more about women-dominated industries like childcare, hairdressing and nursing, earning more money from the bottom up. And I feel the same here. I feel like if you make life easier for women at the bottom, that will affect more change than having women in token positions at the top. Which goes to the argument as well, globally, that the most empowering thing you can do for economies is allowing for education of children and giving women more income rather than being subservient to men. Exactly. And you see this, you know, I've worked and reported in in communities, coal mining communities and steel mill communities, which are very dependent on, you know, things which make the atmosphere hot, unfortunately, and they will not give up mining. They will not give up. They won't buy into climate stuff because the men in their community earn the money and the women only have a few options again like traditionally limited to nursing hairdressing teaching all things that when women started entering them the money started going down so they're unfortunately dependent on these big industries for the male breadwinner to come home and earn money so if you started giving women options and being able to equalize their own earning power you might see a less of a dependence on on these kind of industries that are dangerous to the environment karen do you have any views on that no, I, I think what Brianna is saying makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I, I um, like I don't automatically think more women leaders will improve things. You know, but I think it's yeah, actually one listener has a two-word response to that. It goes Liz Truss. Yeah, and then you could go back to Margaret Thatcher. You could throw in a lot of different names. But sorry, on this pod last week we did play audio of Margaret Thatcher from 1989 giving the most concise, brilliant advocacy for tackling global warming that any politician has mm. done in the, since then. Okay, fair enough. But um, no, but, but just as a general rule, like it's obviously there should be more equality in any in any sector. Like there's no reason why your gender should have any impact on what jobs you take or what you... Like it's interesting even within the media. Like, like I've worked in... Uh, in a tabloid for 25 years and tabloids actually have a far better record than other aspects of the media in promoting women to mm. senior roles and I don't know why that is but it's a, it's, it's sure, in Australia quirk. as well actually yeah. Yeah. Okay just a couple of other things before we finish uh, what do you make of the fact that or what, tell us about Alexa getting an Irish accent <laughs> is this for Ireland only? I believe today uh, Alexa will get an Irish accent. I think it is Ireland only you need to double check that You could um, hardly have an Irish accent for Alexa in other parts of the world could you? I think you could, because you can have an Irish accent on some sat-navs that people preferred to as the default British one in Australia. Like, people just did not like the English accent and were switching it to Irish accents when sat-navs first came out. Remember, like, those where you stuck them on the on the windscreen? On the dashboard, yeah. Yeah, we, we didn't have, we, the Australian accent's always the last one to come out, so we would we would default more to the Irish or American than we would but the, the English. But you have an issue then, is that what Irish accent? <laughs> yeah. But sure, there, even within counties, there could be 50 or 60 different versions. Like, there, you know, how many different accents are there in court? Even even north and south, a lot by. South, quite a lot by. <laughs> yeah, even like uh, they don't pronounce Welsh properly in in Kilkenny. They say Welsh still for some weird reason. Danny, he- what if Danny Healy Ray's voice is chosen by Alexa? <laughs> I believe it's a Dublin-ish accent. 
which in my house, like I didn't grow up with the sound TH. Do you know what I mean? Like I did not know that was a sound because of my mum and my dad's from Western Sydney. So Penrith becomes Penrith. So yeah. Don't worry, there are certain listeners <laughs> who point out there's a particular day of the week that becomes Friday, between Friday and Sunday that I can't pronounce properly either. <laughs> anyway, just to finish, uh, what about our obsession with GA jerseys, Brianna, in this country? And how much okay. sympathy would you have for O'Neill's as a manufacturer that they've suffered a drop in sales because of the shorter inter-county GA season? So my partner said, do not go on the radio and make a show on me about this, right? <laughs> but, and this, this relates to O'Neill's because O'Neill's mainly manufacture the Penrith Panthers jerseys. I'm from Western Sydney. That's my hometown. I'm more of an Eels supporter. But Penrith, they, they've just won two premierships. So, you know, O'Neill's is going to do okay from the Australian arm. Um, but I don't think there should be a championship and a, and, a, and a league. Just play one. You shouldn't have to have two separate things to prove who's the best. Just play oh, one <laughs> season, but like the NRL, like netball, and then you just have like a playoff in the finals and that's it. And that's my hot take that may get me removed from the country, but people only buy jerseys for the finals. save us, please. <laughs> no, I know. That I, uh, sorry, the one thing that would make me chew my arm off in frustration is talk of GA championship structures. So I don't want to go but down what about that the route. jerseys? No, but the, the jerseys, now this... I, it doesn't surprise me, Matt, because outside of, um, you know, why would you buy a Dublin or, a, you know, or a Kilkenny jersey in October, November? You know, you buy it when you're going to games. So the, the, the shorter the season is, it's going to impact. It gets impact on all sorts of things. There's disgruntlement with various sponsors, disgruntlement with people who've paid for corporate boxes because they feel they're not getting the same value as they used to. But this is the road the GA are committed to. I can't see them changing. Like they are committed to a shorter season and particularly shorter summer season. But, you know, you see Dublin are launching a new jersey. You know, that there is... Uh, it is a money spinner, particularly for bigger counties, but the, I think they will find it harder to sell as many as they used to. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Here's one I didn't know. A listener says, the Irish accent is good enough for Marvel's Tony Stark for his ultra-intelligent AI That's assistant. That's true. We've got to leave it there. Brianna Parkins and Kieran Cunningham, thank you so much. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.